Hey, before we get going, just a quick shout out to our friend Foundation Father at Foundation Dads on X slash Twitter. He has a Kickstarter that I think is maybe about almost 50% funded as of now, which we will link to in the show notes for his first children's book called The Rainbow Knight. It's an illustrated fairy tale adventure about the magic of prisms, the nobility of sacrifice, and discovering the colors of the rainbow. You want a wholesome children's book that's just a fun adventure story without propaganda filters, hidden messages, ham-fisted political slogans, or anything like that, then you want to back this project. Like I said, we'll link to it in the show notes. Coming up next, the bookening reads, Dominic! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Bookening, the podcast where we read books and we talk about them. I am Nathan, your humble and obedient host. I think we're back. That's all I'm going to say about that. But I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. I'll say more about that. I'll say it twice. Actually, I'm not going to say anything else about that either. That's all I have to say about that. But I do have two other things to say before we talk about Dominic by William Stieg. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yeah, I think so. You think so? Yep. Okay. Steig? Stieg? If I knew how to I mean, read. it's a German name, and a German would pronounce it Steig. Steig? Steig. William Steig. Steig. If I knew how to read the phonetic key better on Wikipedia. I have never known how to read the whatever key on Wikipedia. Listen, folks, I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. I promise not to say that again, but I've said it a third time. So let me tell you who I'm with. I have the pastor who's a master of reading himself. Steig. It's Steig. I feel very replaced. I don't know. It hurts my feelings. Uh, Steve came in and he took my title and everything. Listen, Jake, we do not replace people on the booking. Now, I also want to introduce (laughs) Benjamin (laughs) Souls. For Reacher, who's a teacher of literature, right there, our old friend and correspondent on the booking. Ghost Ben. Ghost Ben. That was, um, good. that was Ghost Ben. Okay. I thought we should close the window. There's a draft. <laughs> that was Ghost Ben. That was Ghost Ben. Hey, guys, we're talking about Dominique. This is a book that's brought to you by William Stieg. Or Steig. Steig. Stieg. Steig. Stieg. Stieg. Wikipedia ben claims Stieg. Ben looked it up. When you go to Ellis Island, things happen. Things happen. Yep. <laughs> I try not to go there. <laughs> I'm afraid <laughs> something well, might happen. Don't go there. Things will happen. Right. I feel like, well... A little less said about that, the better. Listen, folks, the more said about William Steig. I started to say it the wrong way, and then halfway through, I changed it. That was actually not me trying to do a bit there. William Steig. 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 I'm just going to go with Steig. <laughs> like, like Steve, except I'm Steve. Go Steig. 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 All right, I'm going to go Steig. Steig. Let's, we will each pronounce it a different way. All right. That's great. That's great. It's and very we're, respectful uh, to this author. <laughs> No, no, I'm we sure like he and his family and his descendants all appreciate that. Listen, folks, I'll get into it in context, but this author wrote at least two masterpieces of children's literature. Is this book one of them? Well, we'll get into that in other sections, but I could name a few good books that William Steig has written. And so it's a little bit like Smaug in the 
Smaug. My favorite movie, The Hobbit, colon, Desolation of Smaug, Dawn of Justice. A wonderful literary adaptation. Speaking of literary adaptations, the phrase literary adaptations has as its first component the word literary. And we're discussing a literary masterpiece by the name of <laughs> William Stein. You planted your flag on that. A literary masterpiece. You know what? I like this book. Planting gonna... your flag early and uh, making a bold statement. <laughs> well, okay. All right. Well, we're going to hold you to it. I'd like to dig You're up my flag. You're going to have to defend it. It's a good book. Listen, let's just talk about it. Why don't we get to it? Why don't we get to a little section I call context. Folks, it's none other than choot-choot. <laughs> you got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me, boys. Is that the contextual Chattanooga? <laughs> yeah, go in the line. Listen, if you're a fan of big band music from the 1940s, and who isn't, <laughs> then you know that Ben was just referencing a song called The Chattanooga Choo Choo <laughs> by Glenn Miller, I believe. There's a pair of Texas six shooters over there on the wall. You might yeah. need them. You're from Chattanooga. You don't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You don't hold those. I don't. Hold to those sorts of things. My hands are not big enough. Dance, band, dance. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to hold these. Right. We're holding them. We, we have the six shooters now. Listen, Ben, you're going to provide some much needed context on Mr. William. Something like Steig. That. And yeah, his life, his works. As Before we discuss the immortal masterpiece that is Dominique, a book that I should say is brought to you by our beloved patrons, Jane and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. <laughs> they really <laughs> they, that's Connoisseurs. This. Yeah. They, they are connoisseurs of great immortal classics of literature, and so they recommend that we, that we did this. That, they recommend that we did this one, and so did it. We, we done did it. We read it. We and, done did it. And Ben williams Dyg, you were telling us, interesting guy. Interesting guy. Yeah, I liked reading about him. He was born in 1907. Interesting. Yes, already the interest grows. Wait till I tell you that he was born to Polish Jewish immigrants from Lemberg in Austria-Hungary, who were socialists. Burn anyway, the book. <laughs> exactly my point. This podcast is done. So William Stieg had an early interest in painting, and he liked to read. So his parents liked to encourage that. Apparently, they didn't want him to have a regular blue-collar job because then you'd be a worker oppressed by the plan owners or whatever it was. So so they were socialists, but their the net result was <laughs> we better make sure our kid know. becomes a member of the bourgeoisie. Uh, I, I, I'm not really sure. His dad, in any case, was a house painter. His mom was a seamstress. They just had normal blue-collar jobs. They were trying to support their family. And William Stieg was... A hard worker and graduated high school at 15 years old. I don't know if that was normal then or abnormal or what, but he spent five years at various colleges, including a couple of prestigious art schools, and then he dropped out. And he started selling cartoons to the New Yorker and supporting his family. That makes sense. Which they were grateful for, I'm sure. He was there a long time at the New Yorker. I guess eventually became an employee at some point. He was submitting cartoons from 1930 to the 1960s. It's interesting because you can, you know, I didn't know that, but I can very retroactively see his style imprint. Definitely. Makes so much sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think he had a big book. impact. Yeah. 
Yeah, he had a. I think he had a big impact. He did 123 covers for them. Well, plus let it be said, the New Yorker was founded. The first issue came out in 1925, so this guy mm-hmm. was there from the embryonic the beginning. He, this guy was yep, like almost. with the generation of T. S. Eliot and Joseph mm-hmm. Mitchell and all those wonderful people. Yeah. Dorothy all, Parker, all the way through. Shoot, yeah. you said like 30 e. years. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna. Th- I wonder if you were thinking of E. B. White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. through yep. E. B. White. Yeah, and he did over 1,600 drawings for them. Um, and it was just after the Great Depression started that he was selling cartoons, and you know, it's a good time to support your aging parents and stuff. Right. Um, so he drew some stuff. He was interested in some stuff that the New Yorker would not publish at first. I think it did later. He called these symbolic drawings or symbolical drawings of people, and they express a mood or a state of mind, and they're meant to reveal the unconscious. And so I don't think, well... Let me, let me come back to that. Uh, I want to say, first of all, I don't think you guys will be surprised to learn that his favorite artist was Picasso. No, I don't think so. Maybe Dominic. Yep. <clears throat> his favorite symboliker, his favorite poet maybe, was William Blake. That also makes sense. And then we're going to get back to the unconscious or subconscious mind, his favorite thinker. Wilhelm Reich, good old Willie. He was a psychoanalyst in the generation after Freud, and he wrote books like The Mass Psychology of Fascism and... Uh, are your kids listening? Maybe they shouldn't be. I don't know. Cover their he, ears. Cover their ears. He wrote The Function of the Orgasm. So here is a, here's what Wikipedia has to say about this man. Quote, his writing influenced generations of intellectuals. He coined the phrase the sexual revolution and according to one historian acted as its midwife. Unquote. He inspired, what he inspired, he invented a device you've probably never heard of, which Woody Allen apparently made fun of in his movie Sleepers. And it's called the Orgone Accumulator, or the Orgone Box. It's a collector of free-roaming libidinal energy, sexual energy. It's kind of like a battery that gets charged just by existing around people. What do you do with this box? You sit in it so that it could heal your sexual unconscious. And apparently Stieg liked to sit in this for a half hour a day. He said it would give him a vaguely orgasmic feeling. (laughs) And... (laughs) <laughs> he thought it was helping him. All right. Anyway, Reich and Stieg were friends. They were correspondents. Reich, Wilhelm Reich ended up dying in prison in the 1950s because, oh, what happened? The it, FDA was like, this is some ju- bad juju. Yes. False claims. You're selling people some snake oil, so go to jail. Yes, yes, Gotta that's be. right. So, man... What an, that guy's an interesting guy. Can I just jump in here to say real quick, it's in maybe 4% of a defense for our hero, Mr. Steig, or Stieg. You have to remember that Sigmund Freud died in 1939. So this whole world of psychoanalysis and everything is much more fresh and new and exciting. Right. And it's not like these stale cliches that we have now. I mean, you watch a Hitchcock movie from the 1940s or 1950s and it has the most bo- they can be so ham-fisted and like yes if anybody's ever seen the movie Spellbound set, oh, yeah, set at yeah. a lunatic asylum or whatever the politically correct way of saying mm-hmm. that is I just think of the end of Psycho or the end of Psycho where the expert drones on and on and it's like we need this giant yeah. explanation yeah of those whole yeah yeah but I think that that can give you a little sympathy for the fact that not a ton of sympathy, not 100% sympathy, not even 10% sympathy. But I think I could give you, like I said, about 4% sympathy for the fact that this was a new frontier. And so people were like, well, okay, there's all kinds of things about the mind and about our sexuality and mm-hmm. stuff that we do not understand. And if some expert tells me that this box does this, then 
or it's, it's not quite even as if it doesn't right i'm willing to if there's a possibility i'm willing to be on the forefront to self-experiment to figure out some of this stuff that sort of thing yeah so listener if you yeah. were there you would have had an organo box that's what i'm saying we all would have had them <laughs> that's not what i'm saying i'm saying four percent sympathy four <laughs> percent sympathy well all right this guy uh, all this fascination with the unconscious mind makes Stieg pretty interesting, actually. So he published these early books of symbolic drawings, and I'm looking at a couple of them. I don't want to tell you about them as best I can, listener, even though they're drawings, but they have captions. So one of them is called, I think this one was a later one, it's called The Agony in the Kindergarten. And it's, it's drawings about how we heartlessly abandon our little children to can you, can a you, classroom setting. Can you send them to us yeah, so that hold we can on. see them as you describe them? I send them to Here you right now. Okay, this is ag- the agony in the kindergarten. And I'm just going to, these are the squiggliest drawings you can imagine. They're much squigglier and more primal, I guess you could say, than what we're looking at in Dominic, the book we're actually talking about today. And the kids' faces look like Horror faces from a horror movie about dolls. They're they are they're just kind of terrifying. So here I'm looking at one right now, and and the captions, by the way, are things that you typically or you might typically in the 19 whatevers have said to kids. So here's one with a little girl who looks miserable and forlorn, and the caption is, "It's all right. She doesn't know what we are talking about anyway." If you guys want to point one out. Feel free. It's hard. I think my favorite is near the bottom of this page I sent you. There's a picture of a woman, clearly a mother. She looks, her face, it's just her face. And it looks like a monster's face. It's full (laughs) of rage. And inside her open cavernous mouth, between her white teeth, there is a little boy. And the caption is, Willie! (laughs) And And so this guy was tapped into things that he thought hurt children, harmed them bad ways that we talk to them or treat them. And I want to say there's some insight in here. There's a horrified little boy in a sailor outfit looking entirely ashamed and sad. And it says, say thank you to the nice lady. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> there's there's all kinds of stuff where you're like, I don't know. It makes you think. It makes you feel. Uh, okay. And then I'm going to send you guys kind of a different style. This is, I believe, the first book of this type that he wrote, and this is called About People. So here you go. Here's a new link. And this one is a very different kind of drawing. It's like a neat and precise style. <laughs> and everything's a... I'm, I always say this word wrong. Um, Agony in the kindergarten uh, is... A caricature. A, I don't know if it did anything to you. <laughs> did it dramatize you? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> It's surprisingly... Uh, it's effective. Uh, it's really sad and really dark. It's really dark. It's really dark. It's really yeah. like... It's really dark. It filled me with delight because someone understood me. I mean, to, just to be honest, I'm not, I'm not trying to play to the Nathan's oh Nemo type, but I'm just like, I I love it. Yeah, well, I, I don't think... I mean, looking at that... So I read Dominic first, and, and then I looked at these, and I was like, oh, I'm going to... I think I'm going to have more respect for Dominic than I felt at first because this guy has a genuine insight into people and how to make their feelings and their states of mind visible. Okay, so are you guys on a, about people yet? I am. And yeah. Listener, we will put these links in the show notes so you can also be horrified by terrified little children. 
about uh, people, much more refined drawing. Yes, much more refined drawing, totally different style. So if you go down to the second drawing, these also have captions. They're not quotes. They're just his description of what he's trying to draw here. And there's one called Spiteful Little Man. And it's a guy with a giant beak mask and an umbrella in a briefcase. Almost looks like one of those plague doctor Halloween that, yeah, costumes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like a plague. And you, all you can see is that, like, is it the mask or is it his, his eye? But he looks angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spiteful Little Man. And it somehow seems to capture that guy perfectly. And everything in here is like that. Like There's this supercilious looking guy in a big armchair with his hands kind of folded together. And a bug crawling on his forehead. And a bug crawling on his forehead, kind of an Adams family type figure. And it says, man who determines the mood of a gathering, which again, it's this guy clearly had his problems with the human race, but you, you kind yes. of have to love his. He understood. So if you go down, there's this picture of, a, of an angry, intense looking man with a beard, and I think that must be a watch chain going across his waist or something. That's I think there's a watch in there. I don't know. But he's holding this great big staff, and on top of the staff is a clock. But, it, but the staff looks like a scepter, and the caption is, Father. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. <laughs> it's very sad. See, and, we'll look at look, uh, a fine woman desiring to attract friendship. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> Is that further? Is that past father and all? It that? is. Yeah, it is. Go go down past father. It's these are or hostile personality. Woman desiring to attract <laughs> friendship is just this. How I, would you even describe that? She's I, covered in birds for, for one thing. And she's got a little toy top. Yeah, and then and she's sitting there primly. It's about all these sad people and their weaknesses and their vices, and it's I don't know. It feels priceless. I've never seen these this before. I don't know. Man who wants to be pitied. That's pretty f- profound, actually. Uh, what's the man who I'm looking <clears throat> for? It. Uh, he is he? a dude with some muscles walking a tightrope oh, while yeah. balancing a chest and the basketball and yeah. a chair right. on his head. Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go back up if you go to, well, you can see the, the internal page numbering, page 15, Difficult Companion. Yeah, he's just got It's amazing. Right? Numbers, uh, resentful lad, and he's just covered in acne. These are these are really something. Oh, did you see Clown, page 25? Man, that is really, <laughs> wow. Yeah, folks, we'll, we'll uh, provide a link to this. Uh, don't go with your kids, probably. Nope. But, so Clown is just a guy holding a knife with a bunch of spikes coming mm, out of his back. Like a porcupine, yeah. But he's just a spiky, horrible little individual. There's like nothing clownish about him. I guess he's having his laugh at other people's expense. No, this is really something. And there are, oh, what were the other books of these drawings? Man who wishes not to be forgotten. What page is that? 33. In his pages. Man who wishes not to be forgotten. It's like a guy with a little doll peering through a window. Man dependent on another man's decision. 35. (laughs) Just somebody fading away, kind of. Yeah, so... All Embarrassed About People and the Lonely Ones are the three original books. I don't know when the, when the kindergarten. Yeah, okay. Agony in the Kindergarten was a little later. But all of this, in any case, was before he started writing kids' books. Oh, hey, I w- here's This one. Agony in the Kindergarten is like, if, 
<laughs> it's like what Tim Burton pretends he right. That's right. Yeah. 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 What this he is... what he fantasizes about being capable of. But right. yeah, but this guy actually has observations. Oh, he's tapped into the id. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And, just straight plug. Uh, he's in. obviously yeah, is, man. is utterly he has utterly horrifying. He has suffered at the hands visceral, of humanity. He has hated level. and he has <laughs> uh, he has gathered all that as his material oh, and he has used man. it very well. It, it he so I just feel pain looking at that. Like oh yeah. my goodness. Oh, I do too. But I also feel like it's uh, somewhat humanizing. It's not like it's just exploiting the pain for something. It's like no. I want you to remember that kids suffer. Mm-hmm. So here's a horrifying <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> Tapped into all of your own childhood suffering, yeah. deeply triggering yeah. it, and all the suffering that you've created as an adult all together at once pointed right at your heart. Right at your heart in just a few squiggly lines. <laughs> and it it is. really is like child's drawings, mm. and that's part of what's so visceral about it. It's like if a child could draw a self-portrait in that exact moment. Yeah. Uh, that's what it would look like. Yeah, that one, that one that's, that's the just, horrifying visceral part of it. The monster mother with her mouth open and and the caption is just <laughs> Willie. <laughs> but the boy is the sad little figure inside her mouth. It's, it's perfect. Like, it's perfect. Oh, I man. mean, I just We've all been Willie and we've all if we're parents created Willie, created Willie <laughs> and if Willie could speak his pain at that moment. Uh, oh man. I well, okay. This this kind of stuff makes me think, okay, I think you were some kind of genius. <laughs> I've just never quite seen anything like it. Tim Burton, as he ought to be, is a pretty good call, I think. Like, this yeah. is, this is, Tim Burton yep. is the poser version of this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, Tim Burton doesn't understand people like this or care about them. Right. <laughs> All right. To give you one more idea of this guy's sensibilities, or just another example, I guess. He drew this cartoon character called Poor Pitiful Pearl, and she's this plain and poorly dressed little girl. And it got made into a doll. So here's Stieg talking about this. And and, and she is like a plain, poorly dressed little girl doll. So, quote, I thought there ought to be in the doll world not only glamorous dolls to be regarded with wonder and baby dolls to be mothered, but a plain, unfortunate doll on which kids could exercise their ready compassion for those in any sort of trouble, unquote. Aw. Yeah. So that was like 1956. And then it's not until... Quite a bit later, until he's 61 years old, the year is 1968, that he starts writing kids' books. And then he writes a bunch of them, including Dominic. Um, so you got Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. You got Dr. DeSoto. You got Shrek, which inspired the movie. Um, it's not quite like the movie. And Nathan, and I think, read that and can talk about it. Yeah, I'll um, talk about that in baggage. Yeah, but Stieg was a big fan of the movie anyway. He said, it's vulgar, it's disgusting, and I love it. So, oh well. Um Dude was married four times, had three kids, and he died in 2003 at the age of 95. Wow. Lived a long time. Yeah. A really long time. Long enough to see Shrek. That's pretty interesting. (laughs) Yeah, and Shrek 2 is like dedicated to him apparently in the credits, the opening credits. So, yeah, I'm trying. Let's see. How many kids' books did he write? I'm just looking at this list in Wikipedia. So many of these I did not, almost none of them did I grow up with. I grew up with, well, should we get to baggage? Is, is there any more context? Uh, that we yeah, need? I guess we should get to baggage. All right. Well, I can't really do it until, what's that? It's the baggage plane flying over. It needs to be the baggage train if, if I'm doing Chattanooga. Oh, that's right. Okay. Take two. What's that? 
Do 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 do. It's the Chattanooga. Choo choo. <laughs> wow, listen to that train flying over. Wow. <laughs> Full of baggage. Indicating baggage. Check the part of the show where we talk about our baggage. Jake, what baggage did you bring? Now you have like psychological baggage just from looking at this and guy's scars. pictures. But... I don't think I'll recover anytime soon. I, I might be done for the rest of this episode. <laughs> He really connects you to that, oh like that part of yourself. It's, it's hard to look at for very long. Hey, remember how horrible everything is? <laughs> yeah, that's about right. I feel really loved by him. Jake, what is your baggage? I don't know that I have any baggage with Steak that I'm aware of. Maybe there are other of his kids' books that I read or had read to me, but I don't have any memory, at least of his name. I don't know if he throws some book names out there. Maybe I'll... One will trigger a memory, but maybe not. I don't know if there's any way for me to know. I just don't have anything. I guess my baggage might be uh, I'm a former New Yorker subscriber, and I especially love that 30s to 50s yeah, into the 60s style New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I, I I just love I love the writing style. I love the art style. I love a lot about it. Um, I love the E.B. White of it all, and I love a lot that came before that and preceded him, and certainly a lot that came downstream of him and so it's interesting that uh, we have children's a different sort of children's book connected to to that world it's very different than eb white but yeah well i guess i'll go ahead and say about say my baggage i grew up with the book dr desoto which is about a mouse dentist a fox comes to see him it's just a little picture book and the fox has a toothache, but the fox also is contemplating whether he will eat the dentist, but he needs dental care. And so there's this kind of play of should he help the fox? And then he ends up gluing the fox's mouth closed. So it's a very like Aesop's fable kind of the little creature gets the better of the big creature by being smarter. And the fox is kind of embarrassed and doesn't get to eat the mouse uh, it's not like one of my favorite children's book but it is something that i remember and then in preparation for this episode i won't pretend like this is actual baggage that goes back but i did go ahead and read the shrek picture book of course we all pretty famously hate the shrek franchise at this point and what it's done to and what it did to yeah children's mm-hmm. entertainment for so many years the vulgarity and the celebrity that it kind of ushered in was just terrible although uh, we probably all liked the original shrek movie but when it came out, at least. Yeah, I mm-hmm. loved the original Shrek movie yep. when it came out. It was a favorite thing of Amanda and I's when we were dating or not long after. We'd go and we went and saw maybe the second and the third. I don't know. Yeah. It felt it's refreshing just, at the time. Yeah, it felt refreshing, but it soured in your mouth pretty quick. Yeah, no, it's just Especially like, when you start to see everything that comes downstream of it and watch it all play out and watch what they did to just the simple, humble fairy tale. Well, and it's like, yeah, the, such an such a cynical anti-Disney, anti-fairy tale, anti-kid, anti-whimsy, anti-fun. Anti-Western civilization. Right, yeah. It's, like, that's really what it ultimately <laughs> feels like. It's like, yeah, I it ultimately just feels like I hate you and God and everything. Yeah. Like, I just hate everything. Certainly. Everything king, good. Kings, dads, anything authoritative, anything paternal. Uh, yeah, it's it's awful. And it just, you know, Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy, great celebrities that can do great voices. But now we're in an era where, you know, 
I'm going to hire Timothy Chalamet to do the voice of the guy in my thing because we have to have name brand. And it's like, no, hire people that can do good voices. Uh, and, Toy Story beat them to that. Well, the one that actually beat them to it was Aladdin with Robin Williams, which made a gazillion sure. dollars. Aladdin's the, the real game But the changer. problem is, I mean, Robin Williams can do voices in character. And maybe, right. you know, okay, so the genie's just Robin Williams doing Robin Williams but it's great. It's a perfect. It's, it's a, wonderful. It's an artist and medium that go well together. Yeah, and so it was its own stroke of genius. As yeah. is Buzz and Woody. As is the cast of Shrek. Actually, Lithgow's yeah. good as the prince. Uh, Cameron Diaz is actually good as the girl. Yeah. But then you get this era of like Shark Tale and all these dumb DreamWorks animation things, yeah. and, and just the fact that Disney movies have to have celebrities in them. It's just it's dumb. Anyway. Shrek's horrible. But the book Shrek, which I read in preparation for this, it takes about 10 minutes to read. And it's you can see it coming from the mind of this weird broken guy that Ben just introduced us to. Just in that it's a very Shrek was an ogre who liked bad smells. You know, every time that Shrek Shrek fell asleep and had a dream about children playing in a field eating lollipops. He woke up and said, oh, what a horrible nightmare. You know, it's like the Adams family kind of everything is the reverse. If, if there's something that smells bad, Shrek thinks it smells good. If there's something that's ugly, Shrek thinks it's beautiful. And so it's like 10 pages of Shrek wandering through the world, kind of you see everyone else aghast at him. And then he finds an ugly princess who's been waiting for him and they get married. So just as kind of an ode to everything ugly and sad and broken, it's kind of fun. The movie really is... The, 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 you can see the movie. You can see why Stieg liked the movie because it does keep enough of that sort of spirit. But also the movie is kind of a fundamental betrayal because the movie wants you as the viewer <laughs> to like Shrek and to sympathize with his plight. Whereas the book is just a little five minute. What if the grossest, nastiest person went through the world being gross and nasty and then found lived grossly and nastily ever after. It's yeah. not about empowerment or so it's more like rolled doll. Yes, yeah, it's, it's much. It's very rolled dollish. That's a great call. Uh, so you know, it was good for what it was. It certainly did get. It's meant to make you question your perspective, Nathan. That's what I think. It's meant to make you think. Well, what if there are people out there, and everything that I think is beautiful to them is ugly, and they think I like all the ugliness and love all the. And hate all the beauty. Maybe it did do, do that. I think it was, I vaguely remember reading something in in my context research that indicated that, but I can't find you a quote. I mean, I don't. Maybe I just need to be a little bit more humble, even about how I look at the things that seem ugly and gross to me. Yeah. Well, what, what it really needed was. Is another man's treasure. It needed for him to like make some earwax into a candle and then all-star to be played like four or mm-hmm. five times. and. Mm-hmm. John Lithgow. Well, you know, Smash Mouth. One man's trash is another man's trash. Trash. I, I really feel like <laughs> one man's trash is another man's trash. More <laughs> like Trash Mouth. But as far as little fables telling that story go, like I'm not necessarily opposed to a one man's trash is another man's treasure. Look at what's what's the phrase? Look on walk a mile in a man's shoes before you judge him, and then you'll have his shoes. It's a fine little five minute children's book. Like whatever. I'm not going to buy it for my kid, but I don't find it. To be offensive or anything, it's fine. It's better than the movie. Even if it is a little piece of deconstruction, it's 10 pages of deconstruction. I'm not totally opposed to, let's look at things from the Big Bad Wolf's perspective Mm -hmm. as a small part of a healthy diet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway. Yeah. And that seems to be this guy's trick, and I'm fine with that. 
so I thought Shrek was good. Dr. DeSoto. I bet a lot of our listeners will remember Dr. DeSoto, if only vaguely. It's one of those titles you see around. You see it in doctor's waiting rooms. Like There's I, some vague familiarity. I have toddlers, so I'm, it, yeah. I'm connected to which of those books are kind of in the conversation, and that one certainly is. Ben, what is your baggage with William Stagg, if any? Stieg, I should say. I, I think I read Sylvester and the Magic Pebble, which is a famous one of his, and won the Calicut Medal in 1970. I, I, yeah, I would never have pulled it, but looking at his catalog, I was like, oh, yeah. So this is about this donkey that finds a special pebble, gives him wishes, and he wishes himself into a rock to escape a lion. And then the pebble falls off, and he's trapped as a rock for a lot of the books. So it's this... Like horrible existential fairy tale about being trapped as a rock. But I have some memory of reading it and maybe liking it. I don't really know. I'm kind of interested now to go back to this guy. I did read, I think as an older kid, I was introduced to Yellow and Pink, which you might have heard of. And it's this very short, kind of funny, charming book about two wooden men, two newly created dolls. One's painted yellow, one's painted pink. They wake up and they speculate about their existence. And the pink guy's like, Clearly, someone made us look at us. And the other guy's like, no, over a million years, lightning could have struck a tree. And then the branch fell. And then a bird pecked eye holes. And then we went rolling down the hill through yellow and pink paint. And the pink guy's like, I just don't see it. Then at the end of the book, this, sorry, spoilers, listener. At the end of the book, (laughs) this old guy, this human guy walks over and he's like, oh, paint looks dry. And he picks him up and carries him away. And and pink, pink or yellow is like, one of them's like, who is this guy? I don't know. That's how the book ends. <laughs> so I, I thought it was pretty sweet. Feels like a thumb in the eye of evolution, even though I have no idea. I mean, it's hard to not feel like it's a metaphor. Steve for- was a mystic for sure. Like you, and you, you can feel that in Dominic. I, yeah, I think it is a thumb in the eye of evolution. I think it's a pretty cute, sweet thumb in the eye. So a cute, sweet thumb in the eye. Yeah, that's. I think that's Steeg. Yeah, or a horrifying nightmare of a thumb in the eye. One, One way or another, there's going to be a thumb. There's, there's going to be, be an eye. <laughs> it's going to be an eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that any other more baggage? Yeah. All right, folks. That brings us to the click of the camera as we go into the big picture. This, of course, is the part of the show where we talk about the big picture of what we thought about the book. So what did you guys think about Dominic by William Steeg. I liked it. There are some parts I liked more than others. It's a very whimsical tale. What was your favorite part? Favorite part was the death of Bartholomew Badger. Is that right? Is yeah. The pig's name? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Is of his friend, the old pig who had lived a hundred years and gave him all his treasure before he died. Felt very sweet. It felt like actual death. It felt like a good way of helping a kid process the death of someone that they loved without being too heavy or too sappy, or it was just just really good. That was my favorite part too, for the same reasons. Okay. Yeah. And I like, sometimes I liked Dominic more than others. He's, he's a fun, scrappy hero. He does think he's great, and he does end up simply being pretty great. I think there's so many times where it's he reflects upon his own greatness that you're just you trained expect by him to get yeah like, oh, you of course he's and it never happens. Well, it's like Stieg wants him to be he wants him to be a model for kids. Like, hey, this is how you should engage the world. Like, don't worry about it. Just go out and have a great time and live your life and howl at the, the moon right with the sheer and... love of existence. And don't worry about money. Don't worry about yeah. money. 
Well, I mean, that is one of my favorite. If there's a favorite character moment I had for Dominic, it's when he decides, you know what? Carrying this treasure around is crap. And here's a widow with a bunch of kids. So they can have it. I'll take what I need because I yeah. don't need it. Yeah. And that's yep. that's my favorite character moment. It's sweet. And, it, and you have time enough, I think, living with the widow to feel some real sympathy for her and her situation. You don't feel like she, you know, a lot of widows in that type of situation end up getting sort of turned into annoying characters. Mm-hmm. And she's not, he doesn't do that with her. No, no, um, no, he doesn't actually. She ends up actually being really mothering to Dominic. And, right. And, you know, he leaves in the best health that he's been in, in the whole book. And he really enjoyed his time there and he really bonded with the kids and all that yeah. just felt like a really sweet little, little episode. My second favorite episode. Yeah. Probably in the book. Yeah. Well, Dominic does just seem to be able to enjoy all the people that he meets, and they're all weird, and they all have their clear shortcomings. Mm-hmm. But he just doesn't really care. He's like, eh, I enjoy you for what you are, and hang out with you, and then still going to go do my own thing at the end of the book. And one of the, if there's like a sort of, what you want in a kid's book is for your for it to give you heroes and characters that you can aspire to, or that prop you up in a good way. One of the nice things about Dominic just as a character is that he really does face the world with a sort of open hand, a sort of courage without mm. too much of an agenda, without ever really being threatened by much of anything, including the people who can kill him. Like mm-hmm. it is, he just is who he is. He's going to do what he can. What's going to happen is going to happen. He's just going to try to mm-hmm. greet the world with an open heart and do the right thing. And things tend to go his way. Yeah. For that reason, and I think there's some real, there's some deeper truth to that. That is great to encourage in kids. It says you can get hurt that way, and Dominic does get hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's some kind of worldly wisdom, like, hey, if you want love, you better give it, or you, you know, be the friend that you want to be. There's like good advice. Well, and you can't really enjoy the. There's that whole line of you can't really enjoy the good times and the good people if you're not willing to face the bad times and the bad people right. to fight the bad people or mm-hmm. whatever, however that line goes. Yeah. Which is a nice reality. Like you actually, actually, you actually have to be open to both. If you're going to, if you want to actually enjoy life and enjoy the world and enjoy people, you have to be able to actually face the evil of the world too and deal with the evil people of the world. Otherwise you're just going to be close fisted and close hearted to both. And you won't, Maybe you'll be sort of self-protected and isolated from some of the evil or the evil people, mm-hmm. the world and the the oppressive. This world is an evil place, but that'll close you off to yeah, the, be- the really beauty felt, as well. Mm-hmm. As a character, he felt yeah. a little bit like, actually, I think we're, no, we've kind of stumbled into the hall of hero. Better play the trumpets. Dominic, to me, felt like Errol Flynn in Robin Hood or like one of the knights in like a King Arthur story. It's one of those sort of like dauntless classic heroes that gallant mm -hmm. heroes. Nothing really goes wrong and he's always kind of right. Yeah. And I kept expecting Steak to have like a take on it. Like, is this Wesley from Princess Bride? Is this a sarcastic version of this? And and maybe it is a little bit. I mean, he is awfully self-satisfied. Yeah. You can definitely frame it or reframe it as a pretty sarcastic, almost a, a takedown of the genre. But it whatever. doesn't really make a thing of it. And Dominic doesn't get punished. And he doesn't get punished in an interesting way. Like he doesn't learn any lessons that you'd want kids to learn. But he also doesn't get punished in a sarcastic, like we just don't like these kinds of characters. It, it, at the end of the day, it's, it, it's kind of the surprise is, 
I think maybe William Sneak actually just doesn't have a take on this character. Like he just wanted to tell a story about this somebody kind of who character. goes out into the world just wanting to pursue adventure and not wanting to know the end and being open to whatever came his way and open to the people that he meets and to face down the threats he needs to face and mm-hmm. to help the people that need help and to um, be helped by people when he needs help. And If you think of him in terms of like <clears throat> psychoanalysis, there's one thing that occurred to me, which is he's uninhibited. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing you're supposed to be, right? Psychoanalysis. You're supposed to learn to let figure out how to be uninhibited in the right way. Right. And Dominic is totally uninhibited. Yeah. Of course, he has all his impulses are right and good. Right. <laughs> so that helps. That always helps. <laughs> I mean, the, the Bloodhound Gang or whatever they're called, not the Bloodhound Gang. Well, even at the end of the book, it says, yeah, the Doomsday. The Doomsday. The Doomsday Gang, that they used to be good when they were little. And now they're going to go and learn how to be that way again, try to reform themselves. Okay, so... I was going to say they were also inhibited, but maybe they were inhibited by... That's, that's well, right, yeah. They, well, words. they got this little line early on, if you remember. They weren't good at much, but they were good at being evil, and everybody lo- or and everybody loves being the best at something mm-hmm. or is looking to be the best at something. And that's so a good it's like line. They found, they found their thing they could be the best at, right. and they just clung to it and grew into it. And mm-hmm. as in many children's books, there are weasels and stouts and foxes and stuff like that. Of course, this is what... Yeah. They're the best at. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so I liked Dominic. I mean, I found him a little bit insufferable. Like, I, I wanted, I, I guess there was part of me that maybe wanted something. But on the other hand, there's a lot of pitfalls that he didn't fall. Like, he wasn't annoyingly self-righteous. Like, you could, you've, you, we've certainly all read books or seen movies or read children's stories where... Charles the, Wallace. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Where the char- where the author is like, this is the kind of character you should be. This is the kind of person we should look up to. I love this character. And then and you read the like, character and you're like, ah, this is annoying. Un- insufferable little brat. Right. <laughs> this is, uh, to return to the big picture, the, the thing that I kind of thought about this book, big picture wise, is this is going to sound so snobby, like I'm damning it with faint praise, but I'm going to explain why this isn't damning it with faint praise. The thing that I thought about this book is that it is unobjectionable (laughs) like well i think that's actually a really great way to put it because if you don't maybe i'm going to take this a different place than you do but when i come to books that are trying really hard to have some poetic whimsy about them my first impulse is to sneer and my first impulse is to throw up and there were definitely times where i thought about or wanted to sneer at this book but also just sort of had to take a step back and think you know what I, you know, it's just not worthy of a sneer. He kind of pulls off what he's going for mm. in his own way. And I don't really want to take that away from him because there, he definitely could have, he definitely could have earned the sneer. Like, and he never quite did. And there, there are moments of real whimsy or magic or poetry at various points in the book. And the grief part actually is one of them. And that's why I think it's part of my favorite. Well, I just love in kids' books when they find something that's concrete and real and grounded and they can give some real weight and handles to it, especially for a kid. And death often ends up being one of those things. Like we did bridge to Terabithia mm-hmm. and I hated that book, but I loved, mm-hmm. I loved that moment right, where our protagonist is dealing with the death of the girl and the reality that's captured in that moment and the reality that's captured here in the death all the way through, just like he went out and he dug the grave. Then he had to cry. And then, mm-hmm. He went out and dug up the treasure, and then he came back and oh, remembered he forgot to put up a headstone, so he put up the headstone, then he had to cry again. And 
And then you've got him going out into this, like, he goes for this long walk and has this moment of existential reflection on death and life and Mm -hmm. this thought of everybody's done this before and everybody's going to do it again and there's nothing new and he was here and now he's a memory and I'll be a memory someday and who knows anything about anything. All the kinds of like vague feelings and thoughts and that everybody processes when they process death and then are forced to think about their own death and their own legacy and the people they've loved who are no longer there just in a really tight page or two, paragraph maybe even, I don't quite remember. But I just thought, man, that's a that's really something. That's a nice little achievement, this paragraph here. Because he captures all of those things that are universally felt and thought by anybody who's self-reflective in a moment like that. And it's the kind of self-reflection you want people to be and that you want your kids to have at some point at least. Maybe not when they're very little, but when they face death. Right. And so it's mm-hmm. like, okay, not every kid is self-reflective. Not every person is that self-reflective. But this is the kind of self-reflective that you want people to be. It's the kind of thing that you would maybe pull from Ecclesiastes or Job yeah. um, in mm-hmm. a moment of suffering or pain. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what I was getting at when I said unobjectable. There's so many ways that this story could be stupid, could be coy, could be winking, could be annoying, could be saccharine. Like children's books just go wrong so easily. I think the mark of a, of, of whether you like a genre is whether you like the bad ones in a genre. Like I'll watch any dinosaur movie because I just love dinosaurs. So even the bad Chris Pratt Jurassic Park movies I've watched probably more than once because it's just like dinosaurs. Great. Doesn't matter if it's bad. But children's books, like I only like the good ones. I don't, a, whatever, like the Scholastic, New, Newberry, Caldecott type style I can't. I don't, I don't just come to those and find delight by simply regarding one or opening it up. Like it has to actually be good, and it's so easy for it to be bad and to be annoying. And I think, and I, then to have the one thing about it that is redeemable enough that it gets on a list and lives forever. Yeah, like Terabithia, like Terabithia. Yeah. processing the little girl's death. Spoilers. And I think of I, I, anytime we do a children's book, I think of. A time for the Warhorn magazine that Jake and I used to be the editors of many a year ago now, a little magazine that our church and our presbytery was putting out. And we were writing an article for kids, and multiple people did drafts on it. I don't even remember what it was about. I think it was about Elijah and the Bears. And we were trying to address this article to children. And we discovered just exactly how many dumb ways there are to write to children because we tried to do the really simple version and then it was too simple. And then we tried to do kind of the cutesy like C.S. Lewis, I'm talking to you now. Have you ever noticed that sort of thing? And it's just like, it's so easy to write absolute tripe for kids. It's so easy to be condescending well, and, and it, smug. And part of the reason is because it's really hard to write to kids without a view to the adults who are going to be judging you and thinking about you and wanting certain things from you and you were trying to impress them or trying to all, all that sort of thing. It's sort of like what you end up like, you know, our infamous a Milne take is, I don't know that Milne was actually writing to the kids at all. And so it ends up feeling once you start thinking about just him and the kids, I'm not talking about his poetry, just mm. certain aspects of the Winnie the Pooh stories. It's just like, He's just winking and nodding to the parents who are reading this and giving them something to read and feel good about while they're reading to the kids. And it's not quite for the kids. And the kids will 
you know, if the parents love it, the kids will still love it. But right. it's just so easy to, I don't know, not just be there connected to kids, heart, mind, and soul, and how you write something and actually have that come through on paper. It's just not easy. Um, but it's very easy to suck. It's very easy to be condescending. It's very easy to be winking at the adults in a way that's just insufferable. I mean, you really, the trick of the thing that I loved when I was a kid and I read The Hobbit for the first time and J.R.R. Tolkien says, in a hole in ground, live The Hobbit. And then he stops himself and mm-hmm. says, now, wait a second, you don't know what a Hobbit is. I better explain it. And it just feels like he's talking to you. And I, I was so in love with that. But it's like everybody that tries to do that sucks. Like only you have to be a genius mm-hmm. like Lewis or Tolkien to pull that kind of thing off. And even with the two of them, sometimes it can be a little much. So the fact that this book didn't suck, while that sounds like I'm damning it with high praise, it's like that's faint praise. Faint praise, yeah. <laughs> damning it with high praise. That's the best praise I can give it. I mean, I'm not, we are all either 40 or going on 40. I'm sorry, this book wasn't going to like blow us out of our seats and just leave smoldering socks on the ground because we thought it was so awesome. Like it's not really written for us. So I'm not going to pretend like I actually was like new masterpiece when I got done with it. But the fact that it avoided as many pitfalls and was as fun and breezy in in an actual fun and breezy way, instead of in a straining, sweaty, trying to be fun and breezy way the fact that you know you guys have both talked about things that you found to be kind of insightful or moving and it it wasn't just treacly or annoying i mean some of that stuff was better than others other others of that stuff something we want to talk about the ending of this book which is pretty weird yeah and i mean even if you think well okay so we're not like and you said okay we're 40 we're not gonna be super wowed by something that's not for us but we all have to well, part of maybe part of our baggage should be that none of us actually took the time to read this book to our kids. We mm-hmm. all sat down and read through it in a sitting, probably, and okay, so an hour, hour and a half, two hours, just read through, and that's going to hit differently for all kinds of reasons. You're not even if you sat down to read it to the kids, you wouldn't read it to the kids and sit down and uh, go through this whole book in an hour and a half. You read it a piece at a time, an episode at a time, here or there, and you'd live in this world for a while. You'd leave it and you'd come back to it in these little tiny chunks. And that would provide a very different effect. Yes, absolutely. And the perceptions would all be very different. So where at times in the course of this reading, I thought, oh man, how much more of this is there? It's all kind of the same. That's not fair because that's not how it's meant to be read. Right. And, and a lot of stuff felt arbitrary because you read the whole thing in one sitting and you're like, well, here's another thing. But if you put it down and then came back to it, it'd be like, okay, now we're in this type of adventure. You know, it would flow differently. Any other thoughts that you have, Ben, or big picture wise? Oh, big picture wise, just that there's there's the weird mystical stuff. It's, I don't know, it's not quite nature worship, but it's like I'm having a mystical transcendent moment with the universe and I'm going to, howl and sing about it or pray to life like life i'm yours like yeah well i guess i can have a conversation with that about my kid when they get older if they're still reading this book yeah yeah i wasn't super bothered by it. that was actually one of the things that felt the most arbitrary to me just that and that he wanted to sprinkle on a little transcendence which who doesn't but it just felt like not that connected to anything and then the ending of the book <laughs> was this weird kind of he found the thing he'd been longing for which was a dog <laughs> Sleeping Beauty, as it turned out, for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but only by entering the garden of 
dreams. Uh, yeah, right. It's just like, okay, I don't know how much that actually connects to. <laughs> it all feels of a piece to me. I, maybe part of that is having read about him. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. He, wanted just, I... he wanted just to let it flow. He didn't want to like analyze it too hard. He wanted to let the story flow out of him. So it's going to. You're going to have all these different parts of William Steig. I guess when I compare it to something like Wind in the Willows, so over on Sound of Sanity, me and yep. Ben just reviewed a bunch of children's books, which if you're interested in this kind of thing, you might check those episodes out. But when I compare it to something like Wind in the Willows or Last Unicorn or authors that were seeped in that kind of existentialism and that kind of transcendental, mm-hmm. transcendental whatever relationship right. with nature, I think those guys were much more effective. But about here mm-hmm. I am comparing this book to two stone cold classics of the genre. So maybe that's not really fair, Mm -hmm. but any other big picture thoughts guys. I just think Dominic captures sort of the open hearted wonder of childhood, embracing a world of adventure and wonder. And this girl threw all that away and left it behind. And of course he was on a quest to, to re-engage her with the spirit of her childhood. And so it all makes perfect sense together <laughs> on a big that, picture level. That's a very good pitch. That is a great pitch. Wow. I wish you'd written that book. I'm a good pitch man. Yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> hey guys, what's the pitch of this music? Oh no, we're entering into the villain's lair. Part of the show where we talk about all things devilish, diabolical, and evil. The villains of the piece. We had the Bloodhound Gang. I keep wanting to call them the Bloodhound Gang. <laughs> I am a child of. Now, what are the they? 90s. Because you just. The Doomsday. The Doomsday Gang. The yeah, Doomsday Gang, who, like a villains in like a Looney Tunes or something, it'll be like he'll be doing something and then it'll be like, and the Doomsday Gang was watching him and they creep up on him and they're just always coming out of the shadows to get another beating from our hero. So. What'd you guys think about the Doomsday Gang or anything else that you'd like to cast as the villain? In they're kind of fun, just in how I think Looney Tunes relentless they are. Yeah, I like them. I mean, they were very they were ne'er do wells. We don't read enough books with ne'er do wells. They were rapscallions. We don't read it. We a lot of times you'll have books that like have <laughs> they kind of come out of like a Richard Scarry book or something like <laughs> this that. This whole book kind of feels a little Richard Scary. The end, the drawing style is Richard Scary. We should say the whole book is illustrated, by the way. It's it's a picture. It's a novel, but it's got pictures and he's, the illustrations are super fun and he's a good, he's a good illustrator and they really bring the story to life. So I could imagine you having a lot of fun reading this book to your nine, your six to nine year old people, children, as you might call them. But yeah, you know, lots of books have ancient evil. Lots of books have Dolores Umbridge style bureaucratic evil. We don't get in in this day and age at least enough just pure rapscallions, ne'er do wells, scoundrels, knaves. All the all the synonyms that if you look up in a stupid like Rajay's thesaurus, you'll find for bad guys. We don't get enough of those kinds of guys. So, so I like these guys, and our hero certainly did beat them up a bunch, but no one ever died. Did anyone ever die? I guess it was ambiguous. Yeah, I think they did. I like to think they did. I like to think that all the little animals at the end killed the crap out of everybody. <laughs> That's what it sounded like, actually. I think that was the, I thought about it as I was reading. I was like, the plain reading of this is, if they didn't run, they got killed. Well, it says they fell on their, some of them fell on their knees and asked for mercy, but none was to be found. That's right. Like yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think that's a direct quote mm. or awfully close. And yeah. that's what I was just like, yeah, like they got it. Yeah. Well, five stars for that. <laughs> good book 
Speaking of good things, it's good to enter into... Ben, did you have any thoughts on the bad guys? Not that I didn't already say, yeah. We are going into the crawlway of secondary characters. Getting to talk about all the secondary characters in this book. So who is your favorite secondary character, Ben, and why? Oh, well, let's see. Favorite secondary character. It might have been the pig. It might have been Bartholomew Badger, but it might also have been might have been that turtle. That turtle was pretty good. I like that turtle. Lemuel. Yeah. The jackass was kind of fun. Yeah. Just because he was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I just want to eat alfalfa and lay here and look at the stars. So you I thought of... the picture of him in like a hat and some jewelry that <laughs> Dominic gave him was pretty one of the funnier <laughs> one on illustrations. Each <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, that was good. I like any kind of story like this. Wizard of Oz, the original book, The Wizard of Oz, because as is the movie, I suppose. Any any story where a character wanders around and just meets colorful eccentrics. Outlaw Josie Wales, great Clint Eastwood movie. Just the, any story where our hero, Mumba Bumba, has, or Mumba Bama, whatever, had a pretty fun name. Yes. The elephant. He finally ma- remembered his magic word. Moana. Moana. Moana Bumba Solo. Moana Bumba Solo. <laughs> 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 because the, he's holding a thermal detonator. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> the, there was a goat that had a pretty fun name too. Oh, something Matterhorn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not the one I was. Phineas thinking of. Matterhorn. No, that's not the one I was thinking of. There's running gag about the fact that the pig's name is Badger, and there's a bunch of animals with the there, names of other animals. There's a mouse named Manfred Lyons. Mister, Mister, Mrs. Fox is the goose. And that, I will say, if I'm allowed to be slightly critical, I found to be a tiresome and subpar running game. <laughs> I know that makes me a monster. It, it does. Probably if I wrote the book, I would have done it, and I would have patted myself on the back and been very pleased to have come up with the conceit. However, I wasn't pleased to read it. I'm sorry. I just thought it was dumb. <laughs> Zero stars. Opposite of a masterpiece. Zero stars. Anything else you guys want to say about the secondary characters? They were all pretty fun and well-drawn. and The mouse was fun. The mouse was fun? I like that the mouse had a defense for realism. Yes. Yeah, everything about the mouse was good. I like that Dominic was like, I don't get the point of hyper-realism. Why wouldn't I just go out and enjoy the thing? And the mouse is like, because you can't just go out and enjoy the thing 100% of the time, dummy. You can't enjoy flowers in winter. You can't enjoy winter and spring. And so, I don't know, maybe shut up. You're not an artist. Uh, I just thought that was kind of funny. And and and, and coming from Steve, who's the farthest thing from uh, a, a believer, in, or, or maybe not a believer, uh, a practicing realist, I mm-hmm. guess I should mm-hmm. say. There's nothing, there's no realism in anything I've seen of any of, no. right. anything he ever did no, no. in his not life. Not his interest. Not his stories, not his art, nothing. Right. Yep. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. But he just too. drops a shut up, realism's kind of cool. In its yeah. own way. He likes it as part of his menagerie. Yeah. Well, and also, who are you, Jock, to judge? Which is <laughs> which I like. Speaking of... You get your spear and go kill some bad guys. Just your spear. Leave the yeah. art to me. I'm, I'm good with you, but <laughs> you, you, you do your thing, I'll do mine. Yeah. Speaking of things that are doing their things, it's the roadster speeding down the highway, ushering us into the part of the show where we talk about the twists and the turns that the story took was anything surprising was anything unsuited to the story what did you guys think about the plot maybe it's a little hard to talk about given that this was just about as episodic as they come 
I thought it was interesting that nothing ultimately nefarious happened because he followed the witch's instructions. The witch is a witch and is introduced as a witch. And he just trusts the witch and it turns out okay. Yeah, I think that's just, witches just aren't bad in this guy's in world. In this world. Feels- and it, you don't really realize that at first, but you know, the witch gave the elephant a gift because he was tiny and whatever. Right. Well, I feel like I, Dominic- I, I half expected Dominic to be like, cool. I will go all the way, since I'm going to come to a dead end, I will go all the way down this path. I will experience the dead end and I will come all the way back. Uh-huh. And then I'll go down the other one because then I'll have experienced it all. Right. And if I go down the left one, I won't experience the right. But if I go down the right, I'm going to get through everything. Uh-huh. I expected something sort of like that to happen. And I was like, okay, he took the, he just heedlessly followed the witch's advice. And so there are things like that where it sort of upset my expectations for how I, I feel think like with, with the witch, what, it wasn't one of those yeah. for, for me because with the witch, he, it felt like he passed the test. Like what he could have done is <clears> ask her to tell him his entire future. That would have been. The, the bad thing he could have done. That, yeah. was, that was the poison yeah. apple that she was offering, but he rejected it. And so therefore- So he got a good gift, <laughs> he got a good which gift. is good advice. Right. Don't waste your time down the right path, go down the left. And I think that that makes sense. I just wasn't ready to give that right away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it took a second for me reading it to know what to expect. Well, then he turns like, around and the first thing happen? that happens to him is he gets a spear. Right. And our clever catfish is like, you'll win every battle if you use wield it rightly. And- how do I wield it rightly? In such a way as to defeat your enemy, dummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but then the next thing that happens is he falls into a pit. It's right. like, okay, like is the witch behind all of, is he going to face a series of unfortunate things? Yeah. yeah. Looking for more more of an overarching thing than there actually was. Well, the overarching thing is that there is some kind of destiny. There is some kind of hand of fate and the witch is tapped into it all. And so she can arrange, you know, for the girl to be the sleeping beauty and she can arrange for Dominic to find her. And all of that. So there is some idea of like the universe makes sense and Dominic is just by being his uninhibited self is tapped into it and he's doing what he needs to be doing even though the whole journey is a series of semi-random episodes. Yeah. And that seems to be what Steve kind of likes. Yeah, I mean, one example of the way this book could have been really annoying is if he'd underlined that a little bit more in, in a way that would have been preachy. Like I'm thinking of the alchemist by Paulo, whoever. Puello. Puello. However you guys say that guy's name. These, these little moral fables where somebody goes through life and they live it the right way. Dominic could have had like a little poem that he said about living life to the fullest. And he could have just repeated it. And he could have really drove the home point, the, the home point, the point home. Instead it's there. You know, he definitely has a life philosophy and Dominic is, definitely living it out but it's not ham-fisted mm-hmm. again so again not objectionable in a place where it very easily could have been uh, any other twists and turns i mean the ending did feel pretty arbitrary to me as i yeah yep same until you step back and make awesome sense of it like i did yeah. until that moment and then you step forward again and you're like <laughs> nope it still, it still doesn't yeah, no. work yep. <laughs> this is pretty stupid i really liked your pitch <laughs> it's a good pitch but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very different than what I said when I finished the book. Yes, it is. <laughs> Which Ben was there for. I was there for. He said, this guy has nothing to say. <laughs> what a stupid ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it's of a piece with his, like, I don't know. I feel like I've gotten to know him some, and it's mm-hmm. of a piece with what I might expect of him. That doesn't make it a satisfying ending. Yeah, I kind of wish you'd given your context before I read this book. I probably would have enjoyed it more with the... 
the additional baggage of, of with, who this guy is. Right, with having him terrify you with images of <laughs> emotionally scarred children. Well, yeah, it would have changed a lot for me. I would have believed in him. Yeah, likewise. likewise. I, would have, trust, I would have trusted him. I would have seen yep. the whimsy in a different way. not as a natural extension of something that he's just always doing, but as a very finely tuned, like, I'm doing whimsy now. I think I would have had more yeah, respect I mean, for it. To achieve an effect here. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I felt that with, I mean, he's, he's such a good prose stylist. This is such a, he wants to be that I kind of felt like there's something here. Like, I'm not quite following your master plan, but I think you have one. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. It's just, I think certain things have different cook times. Yeah. Right. And, and certain authors definitely either they grab you or they grow on you. Mm-hmm. And a book is going to take the time it takes to read. Yeah. A painting or a picture may take the time it takes for it to fully settle on you and for you to fully wrap your head around it and feel like you have some understanding of it, but you still have that initial right. impression. And, yeah. and then you build off of that initial impression. You know, there's how it strikes you. And then, then there's the more you think about it, or the more you see it, or the more you reflect on mm-hmm. it, it can change or evolve in your mind or your thinking. But definitely these very simple, these the kindergarten stuff or whatever is just for me, instantly visceral. Oh, yeah. Yes. And right. And you don't have to read the caption for it to be instantly visceral, but then you read the caption and then it's that much more heightened. And so, that's right. And so then it's like, okay, like that's something, like that's special, like that's an achievement. If you can have produce a visceral emotional response with some scribbly line drawings, just pen to pen, pen and ink, mm-hmm. like you've got real talent and you have something to say, you have a perspective on things and you have, mm-hmm. and you know what you're about, what you're doing. Like yeah. there's some sophistication there that's special. Yeah. And that just totally recontextualizes the way that you think about anything else you might do. Yeah. Right. It'd be kind of, it, it it, well, I read Shrek after I read, whatchamacallit? Dominic. Dominic. And yeah. just having the additional con, just reading his second book, it was like, okay, I see what this guy's doing and I like it. I imagine if I read another book that's the equivalent, another chapter book like Dominic, I'd probably yeah. like it more and be more tuned to what it's doing quicker. Yeah. I feel like, Nathan, maybe this is not true, but I feel like there, there maybe there's something by him that would hit you as a masterpiece and that as an adult might be closer to like the visceral sort mm-hmm. of kindergarten book. Wouldn't shock me at all. If well, I on this show, I'm notoriously slow to give any author, my trust. I didn't, I had trouble trusting Jane Austen with Emma, for goodness sake. Like, Mm -hmm. it just takes, I have a warm-up time when it comes to any kind of book that I, Mm -hmm. you know, some of that I think has changed since the early days of the show and any number of things. Just like, there was very much uh, a time when I was much more guarded and self-protective about about mm-hmm. things like that. A little but, less like Dominic. A little less like Dominic. I'm much more like Dominic today than I was back then. But I'll read this. What if, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Maybe it'll and kill I'll, me. I'll take it with an open heart. Yeah, maybe <laughs> it'll just like brutalize me. <laughs> Who this, knows? This, this Who cares? makes me feel like I'm in a hole. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll go kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm crying. Now I'm ah. crying. Yeah, but um, I forget what I was going to say about that. But uh, now you're less guarded. Now you're less guarded and... Well, I think the point was just everybody's got their own sort of... How much do you want to give to somebody and mm-hmm. how much... How willing are you and how willing are you in an afternoon to give yourself to somebody or to something or to a kid's book? All of that so sort of determined. And we were talking about this even when we were talking about 
Anna Karenina, and I don't even know if this ever made it to air, but so much of your take on a on any piece of literature, there's the context in which it was written, there's the baggage you bring to it, and then there's a the context in which you read it. And some of that has to do with the stage and season of life you're in, your age, state of your kids, your family, your job, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Even just like that, that what you had for breakfast that particular day, it all really can make a huge difference in how you read these things. And it's very difficult mm -hmm. as a reviewer, as a commenter, as a critic to separate yourself from any and all of it at any, any given point in time. You know, and that's part of why it's like, well, it's worth saying out loud. You know, I think that we all had enough perspective to know that this book wasn't meant to be read in an, in an hour and a half in an afternoon. Uh -huh. It was meant to be read in a more slow pace over several days or weeks, methodical sort of sort of way. Like I think we all know that, but it's mm -hmm. worth letting the reader know that's yeah. still not how we read it. And right. so it's even though we objectively know that it it still impacts how we feel about it and how we think about it on some level, even if we try to create some separation and some objectivity about it. Yeah, it's one of those things that's yeah. really worth marking is when you let your guard down. You just got me thinking about that. I don't know if this directly relates to Dominic, but some of the most delightful experiences in engaging with the text are that moment. You're watching a comedy and suddenly something makes you laugh and you're like, okay, now I trust that this is a comedy. Yeah. And, and then you laugh at everything. Even the stuff that's not that funny. You're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, and around the time he's running for the Matt Boulder, you're like, okay, I get it. This guy goes on adventures, and there's this is going to be one thing after another, and I love and it. And I'm here for it. I hear it. But there are things that yield their yield themselves a little slower, and those can be really delightful, too. The one that I'm actually thinking of is a related children's property, which Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I saw that movie really young. I didn't have any context of who Roald Dahl was, the Gene Wilder movie, of course not the Johnny Depp one. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching the movie, kind of being with it, feeling for Charlie, stuff like that. But then you get to the factory and then one kid gets knocked off and then the second kid gets knocked off. And then suddenly you're like, oh, there's a pattern here. I see what he's doing. All these kids are going to get murdered and then Charlie is going to be... <laughs> None of them die. Yeah, I know, I know. They just get horribly mangled and mutilated and stretched right, it's, out. It's, and It's one of those things like Die Hard's a Christmas purple. movie and the best horror movie is Willy Wonka and the Jugga <laughs> My take, I read, read it. But there is something delightful about... It, it's not like you're surprised every time one of those kids gets it. It's, it's actually somewhere in there you key in, you realize exactly what's going to happen. And, well, then, and then you're just excited to watch it happen. Well, and so then every one of these genres come then with their own sort of like thing. And we've all read enough in the sort of Newberry Caldecott realm mm -hmm. of things. It's just like the reason you got this is because you've got some little woke angle or some little bent or some little thing that I'm just suspicious. I don't trust that you got this status simply by being a good kid's book. Mm -hmm. that I would just be happy to give my kids. And so I, I'm not giving yeah. you anything. You're going to have to earn it. So, And I think that definitely is something that I bring to everything that comes as a children's or young adult novel to us. And, and honestly, that's the way that I think probably most of our listeners are increasingly approaching anything in the world of entertainment. It's like, how are they going to force some woke thing into this corner or that corner of of this movie or this show or, or whatever else. It's just hard to come to anything with any kind of trust or. Yeah. 
And that's good. We want to be discerning and we ought to require our entertainment to earn yeah, absolutely. The right to impact our hearts and impact our minds and impact our thinking. I, I think the thing about it is we're all, we all feel that way when we watch a Disney movie. There's nobody that's in our audience, at least, that isn't like approaching that with a suspicion. People have, when it comes to this kind of mid-century Newberry stuff, some people had really positive experiences with it. Some people remember it really nostalgic. Like some, there are some people who pick this book up, they've never heard of it, but they just see the cover, they see the illustration design and they're like, I'm going to love this. And I don't think any mm-hmm. one of us three ever are, had that. Yeah. yeah. When when Jake picks it up, he obviously he's like, is it going to be like, you know, Bronze Bow, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, right. Island of the Blue Dolphin? Like, is it going to yeah, have exactly. some stupid like, thing I have to learn, Bridge to Terabithia? Yeah, I learned to avoid all those books even as mm-hmm. a kid. It's just like, I'd rather have trustworthy R.L. Stein, who's just going to give me some dopey thrills than, you know... Whatever he's well, that whole, that entire genre feels like it's written for hippie librarian women. I mean, that's that's really, right. That is exactly what it feels like. It's written for like school moms to feel good about reading to kids and feel like they've. But it's like you school moms kind of like you who went to or, Woodstock and then put on a long skirt and went and tried to teach school and yeah, give well, a little bit, little bit of liberal philosophy. Exactly, exactly right. Which you know is funny because part of reading this, part of reading this book, reminded me of this Stephen King novel I'm reading about this about this teacher who's just like that. And he goes back in time to like 1958 to 1963 and he gets a job at a school and he's like going to introduce him to Holden Caulfield and slip in some pre 60s, 60s stuff. And it's just like, but yeah, that whole genre is just like that. It's just like, (sighs) you guys are trying so hard and you suck. Mm. There, just make a good thing for kids. Yeah. All right, it's enjoyable I'll, and fun and cool, and so I I absolutely bring a lot of suspicion to that sort of thing and have a guard up. There's all kinds of things like that. I can think, yeah. The, the dumb thing standing out in my mind right now is Hamilton. Like Hamilton had to win me, and I know it's the dumbest thing in the world that it was King George that won me, but that was the moment and that. Well, that guy is such a consummate businessman and professional that he he put in a bland white comedy song to win you. I mean, honestly, I know you, you fell I know. for it. I, I well, I did too. I, I absolutely, I fell for it. I fell head over heels for it. I knew it was a cynical move and I didn't care. Oh, you don't like rap? Here's a music hall song in the style of <laughs> Mary Poppins. You square. <laughs> yeah. With, and our villain is a gay white guy. Right. That <laughs> yeah, was great. And I, just, it was great, I loved everything it about it. I was song. like, okay, well, you know what it said was, Part of the cynicality of that was what I appreciated because what it said was, I'm here for you too. Mm-hmm. Like, I am not trying to stick my thumb in everybody's eye, actually. I'm just trying to do a cool, fun thing. And hey, we all and hate I, gay, white, British guys, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And the answer is yes, of course we do. <laughs> right. And then it's like, okay, I'll give you your perspective and I'll give you, a, and I'll, I'll just go along on this ride with you and enjoy what's to be enjoyed. Right. And Because you know what? It, at the end of the day, what he said is, I don't hate you. Mm-hmm. which is what so much of this stuff screams. It's like, I may be different than you. I may have a different perspective than you. You're going to get that, but I don't hate you. And I'm glad you're here. And that was all I really needed, but I did need it. Right. No, it's the genius of, it's the genius of the first Iron Man movie. It's two minutes in Robert Downey Jr. has done, done a complete charm offensive on the audience. 
And suddenly we're stuck with this dumb franchise for 10 years. <laughs> I um, know, I know. But it's just like, if you start with Thor and you gradually make people lock in, it ain't going to work the same way. What you need is him and the Humvee with the soldiers just being yeah, the most charming. charming. And half seducing the girl across the way. And and I remember. And I, then he's got to blow some things up. And you can feel the audience. You can feel. I, I remember being in the audience opening night. And it's like, they're all kind of holding their breath. Are we even going to like this? And then. The first words that come out of his mouth, they relax, they laugh, and they're now they're, they're on the hook, line, and sinker. Anyway, Ben, I feel a defense of Caldecott or Newberry well, stirring in your corner. I was just looking back over the book of Newberry Medal winners and remembering being being a kid who read lots of stuff off the shelf, just pull it off, pull it off. But to be honest, out of the ones that I see here and that I read, I'd say I like some of them. I don't think all of them are just cynical. There's some of them that I was like, ah, I'm sure they're not. I would I'm have, sure I'm glad I read that. that, that I liked. I'm sure that there are, there's too many for there not to be. Let's, you hear, know, some, let's hear some uh, of the great, the good titles. too many years. Well, this is just, it's been a while. The Trumpeter of Krakow, I liked a lot. It's a really fun story. Never read it. It's a really fun story about the alchemist stone in Poland and not fantasy exactly, but it's got a hint of something like that. And then you've got, man, get Caddy Woodlawn. Never read it. It's good. It's fun. Fun stuff. About a tomboy. You've got. I think I did read that. I like Caddy Woodlawn. I think it's genuinely fun. You've got. This is just a boy's adventure book here. Call it Courage. Oh, yeah. I, That's I, all it is. I like Call it Courage. Yeah. He like fights an octopus and stuff. It's mm-hmm. great. You've got some stuff where I'm like, did I like this? Maybe. Adam of the Road. I think I liked it because it's medieval. It just puts you in a world. You've got The 21 Balloons, which is a super fun, wacky fantasy comic with really cool illustrations. It's just about going up in balloons and crazy things happen. I don't even remember. I just know it was really cool. You've got you've got a bunch of titles that I remember looking at on the shelf and never reading. I would like pull them off and think, nope, like Secret of the Andes. And now Miguel, carry on, Mr. Bowditch. Rifles for Weighty. I did read Rifles for Weighty. Pretty good book. I read Island of the Blue Dolphins and Bronzeville. I don't remember hating them. Is that maybe there's a reason to hate them. You guys sounded like you had reasons I to hate them. them. Maybe, maybe they're hateable. I can't recall. I think I tolerated him, at least. Maniac McGee. I remember that liking or thinking I liked that one. I didn't read that. I read another book by that guy that I hated. Jerry Spinelli. Jerry Spinelli called There's a Girl in My Hammerlock, and it was about how this girl joined the high school wrestling team. So that book was bad. As you re- list off these titles, it's filling me with nostalgia, but it's also filling me with the kind of dread of <laughs> the musty school library. Yeah, yeah like, I just don't. like. I think maybe some of it's I just associations. associations. Yeah, yeah, and yours are fond and mine are not. Yeah. Well, my associations are... Scholastic newsletters and old library ladies and teachers who really, really want you to know to feel the feelings of this book and or get the point of that. And I just like... or Yeah. I just don't remember that pressure. I, I just remember feeling free to like read like, whatever and enjoying a lot of it. Well, we have here a public school kid, a homeschool, for the most part, kid... Uh, Jake would be the public. I'm the ben, public school ben guy. Ben would be. Yep. And uh, we have a combi- combination slash Christian school kid. Well, hold on, me. hold on. I got to say, my, my fond memories especially come up through sixth grade when I was a public school elementary school kid. Fair enough. In a small, in a tiny school near Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I just remember I had a great time. Now, was there a train and did you ever take it? And could you have said you were on the Chattanooga choo-choo? Many times. <laughs> okay, good. Just checking. <laughs> yeah. They took um, the Chattanooga choo-choo to and from school every day. Did you take the tat tat new? Basically, I did. I did. They made the kids dance like they used to do in the fifties. 
It was mm. pretty. It was a pretty rough life, actually. <laughs> yeah, nothing like being on a train, forced to dance on a train. Snap my 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 fingers would ache from snapping during that dance. And when I got to school, it'd be hard to hold a pencil. I would cry. Yeah, I don't want to go back to those days. But the <laughs> library was pretty great. Yeah, I mean, I there's some respite from all the forced dancing. <laughs> there was some respite for sure. <laughs> <laughs> in case people haven't figured this out, I've always enjoyed hating things. And so, <laughs> what? I, 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 that's I don't a know. People have noticed. You know, me. that's helping me put some things together. About yeah, you know, thing. I certainly, there were books, titles. The Animal, the Vegetable, and John D. Jones is one that sticks in my mind that just mm. lingered in our school library that we would pull down and mock. There were penguin classics that we would pull down and be like, ooh, that one has a naked lady on the cover because it's a penguin classic. And I didn't like to hate things, but I love to be a rebel. Mm. And so if it was assigned or something we were supposed to do, I <laughs> automatically hated it, period. End of discussion. <laughs> but I was also the kid who would secretly take home his like literature book and read the stories that were not assigned. Mm-hmm. For himself. <laughs> Secret nerd. I was a kid who loved yeah. to be compliant. Like I loved, I took great pleasure in following the rules. Ah, good thing you didn't live in Nazi Germany. <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say, Nathan? Just say it. I mean, the whole point of my childhood was to just be the kid who built a cache of cool on never doing the thing you're supposed to do in school, ever. And I just did the things I liked. And one of the things I liked was hating things. Um, (laughs) So so, I don't know. There's also the fact that every time I return to one of these books, even the ones I like, I'm usually disappointed by it. Wrinkle in Time being maybe the the big example of that. Like, what a trash book. And what a book that I really liked when I was 10 or whatever it was that I I read. Yeah, I associate that book with a teacher that I loved. So the the thing that like characterized my, a lot of my school childhood stuff was I never did the things I was supposed to do. My teachers still loved me and thought like, I don't know, they all wanted to like mother me and stuff. And I still got, I was still in like all the advanced classes and got straight A's and all, but I just never did any of the work I was supposed to do. And some, I don't even know how it happened, but this particular teacher just didn't have any of it. And she's the only one who just was like, no, you're going to do the work or you're going to fail. And uh, good luck explaining that to your parents. And I hated her, which is why she's one of the only teachers that I look back and love. But she read that book to us. She actually read it to a wrinkle in time to us in mm. class. And so um, so I, I had affection for it just because I associated it with her. She also read Johnny, to Johnny Tremaine to us. Mm. Or maybe we had to read Johnny Tremaine. A book which weirdly actually does hold, or I hated as a kid, and then we read it I on hated, show. I hated Johnny Tremaine. Pretty good. And I liked Wrinkle in Time. That was both Mrs. Culliver's fifth grade class, and yeah, I, they inverted for me too. But yeah. There's another book. I just had it. I lost it. I don't know. There's another a famous one from that time. That you hate? That you love? No, nah, I don't know. I don't know. I just had a, huh. I had a hot take on another book, but oh well. Yeah, I was looking back at some of these. I was looking at The Gamage Cup. Did you guys read The Gamage Cup? Don't remember. Don't even recognize Man, the title. I loved that book. That should be in. Should have been one of the kids' fantasy books or in, in the list, in the running, anyway, for us to do on Sound of Sanity. Well, there you go. There you um, go, guys. I think we're almost done here. But do you have anything to say in the salon of style part of the show where we while away the hour discussing the power of prose? In this case, the dulcimer tones of Mister William Steig. I uh, I have respect, a lot of respect for the style. 
of this book. Not my cup of tea, but he's consistent across the board. Never uh, cutesy. He, he never, yeah, he never crosses yeah. the line into cutesy or gag me or just too much. We were talking earlier before the show about there being uh, some ways that he taps into just sort of like Anglo-Saxon style poetry mm -hmm. and he goes his whimsical ways here and there and he loves to throw in some big words for the kids to puzzle over that might strike a kid's fancy or his pride in good or bad ways, but it's consistent in tone across the board. It's steady. It is a choice at every point and he never really falters in delivering on the style mm -hmm. that he's chosen to, to create. And so it holds up and it works. And that's just a real achievement. No matter how you slice it, whether you like it or not, I think it's hard to say anything bad about it. That's not just simply a judgment of taste. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially with that Anglo Sasson stuff, by which we just mean the alliteration, basically. The rhythmic he, alliteration. Yeah. There's a musicality that he's that he moves in and out of. The yeah. Man, so easy to be dumb. So easy. I've seen other people do it. So easy to. Well, you, you start to do that and you end up sounding like Dr. Seuss or something stupid. Mm. Right. And, but he never does that. It's just, he never feels too self congratulatory. That's the thing that sticks out about these kinds mm -hmm. of or books. Pretentious or pretentious or, yeah. Yeah. Just like trying to show off. And is it nah, He just wants to tell a good story. And these are the words that it occurs to him to use. And he also wants to, he wants to be whimsical. He wants to introduce kids to words he thinks are fun. He said something like that in an interview. Like, kids like these words. Like, why not have some fun words? They, they're like, what's that? It sounds funny. Like, why not? Yeah, I really appreciated the use of big words, actually. That was something that I was kind of subconsciously clocking the whole time and enjoying. It was just like, I would have, if I was 10 and I read this, I would have really liked yeah. the compliment that he's paying me. Yeah, it very much is going to strike your ego as a child. Almost always you can figure out more or less what his big words mean in context. Mm -hmm. If not, you can be the kid who pretends that he does, or you can be the kid who looks it up in the dictionary and now has a new $10 word. Mm -hmm. In any case, like, you don't, it never really detracts from the story that he's telling in any way. And that's just fun when you can do something like that. Yeah. I mean, I've always thought that the concerns with vocabulary that certain communicators or speech coaches or people that talk about rhetoric or people that talk about charisma have is overblown. I think oftentimes, obviously, you don't want to come across as a snob who uses too many big words. There are, there are ditches that you can fall into. And yet having been under all three of us uh, a a head pastor in our old church who had a extensive expansive expansive old world vocabulary <clears throat> it's like that was usually not the problem if people didn't understand him it wasn't actually that like it turns out context clues are most everything. people can can clue into yeah, if you read mm -hmm. Scott Adams or somebody, he'll say, if you want to be an effective communicator, you must speak at a sixth grade level. That's the golden, uh, you, you, you read uh, gurus on Twitter, they'll tell you to do that. I, I know what they mean, and I appreciate the wisdom behind it. But on the other hand, the thing that's really good is just to be natural and use the vocabulary that God and your parents and whatever educational system you were in gave to you. Gave to you. And not to reach for, reach potentially, but also not to, sort of downgrade well, yourself too much because usually people can understand what you're talking about. Well, and there's a way to downgrade yourself that is and feels condescending. Right. And um, oftentimes children's authors do it. That's right. And there's a, there's all kinds of ways to be pretentious. There's all kinds of ways to be and feel condescending. You can throw $10 words out there and then be like, you're probably too stupid to understand what that means. So let me explain it to you. And that's annoying. 
you can throw a ten dollar word out there because it's just the natural thing that came out of your mouth, and you can move on, and you can trust people to get it or not. You can do that enough that you're just not being thoughtful about your audience. Yeah, there's absolutely. There's just like all kinds of. It's just. But if you're the kind of person that says belligerent instead of angry, I don't think you have to. Work. And you said, "Man, I was feeling belligerent." Like that's not gonna make a bunch of yokels in the audience be like, "Oh no, he said belligerent." What? What? I mean, right. like. Maybe uh, it sounds like maybe I'm giving a defensive snobbery. I'm really not. I'm just giving a defensive being yourself. Maybe I don't know. And, you- the, and there's a place to stretch people too, because the more words you have for angry, mm-hmm. the better you can understand yourself. Because some this is one of the difficulties that you have with kids. You you can only understand yourself insofar as you can express yourself. Right. And so if all a kid can say is I'm angry or I'm sad. Okay, well, that's fine for a two-year-old, but it's not quite okay for a 12-year-old. You need to understand the difference between being angry, being frustrated, being annoyed, being... And there's a world of people that are like, those aren't biblical words. When you say annoyed, what you mean is angry. And yeah, there's truth to that because we're trying to talk about sin, Mm -hmm. but you're also trying to talk (laughs) about the particular expression of that sin. And annoyance is connected to anger, but it's also connected to impatience. And it's also connected to other things. And you need to be able to have mm-hmm. some nuance in how you understand what it is that I, is at the root of that in you. Yeah. Uh, and the same is true of sadness. Mm-hmm. Are, you despa- are you despairing? Or are you just feeling a little down? Is it melancholy? Is it depression? Is it... There's just all kinds of things that, you could, that could be going on. And sad's a very black and white to do it. And when you give kids and you open up their world to different ways and nuances and colors that they can paint with in terms of their feelings and their thoughts, that's good. It's not good that we live in a society where in order to, to be an effective communicator, generally speaking, you have to have a sixth grade or lower vocabulary. Right. And a good communicator who has his hearers in mind can elevate his mm-hmm. hearers as well as yeah. uh, speak down to them where they're at and communicate clearly and effectively. Yeah, well, the other thing I think about that is that you become a poor communicator when you remove all color and life from what you're doing. And if, if your color and life happens to exist in, your vo- in some of your vocabulary, then I think you're actually going to more effectively communicate your point sometimes if you use a word that some of your audience doesn't know, but you use it expressively and naturally. Right. Then... If you dumb yourself down, I mean, you actually Well, see- at a certain point, it's like telling Da Vinci to paint with crayons. Right, exactly. Right, because people aren't sophisticated enough to understand what he's doing with his oil mm-hmm. work. It's like, well, they may not understand it, but they'll feel it. Right. And they'll feel it much better than if I did it with crayons. So forget you. Forget like, you. I- I'm going to paint with oil, and some people will understand it, some people won't, but everybody will feel what I want them to feel on some level or another, and that's okay. That's the effect that I want. Yeah. The other thing you just made me think of, apropos perhaps of nothing, is the thing that I love that psychoanalysis and psychology has given us is vocabulary. And I think if you go there for your ideas, for your philosophy, for your idea of being as a human, bad. But man, I'm glad that we have terms for things like ego, for things like stress, for things like depression. Yeah, for and what's like amazing, phobias. and listen, listen yep. to this, guys. You will be critical of every bit of vocabulary that is new that comes from psychology while unthinkingly and uncritically using everything that's 50 years or older all the time in your day-to-day thought, speech, 
patterns discussion. You'll accept it when your preacher talks about your subconscious feelings and thoughts, but not when he talks about whatever the new thing is. Right. But you have to be able to understand that mm -hmm. there are useful terms that are really good to have, really good to help us understand even things that the Bible is saying in a more more clear way. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, part of your work as a preacher, part of your work as a Christian is to give those things a context that's good, that, that actually fits the Bible's definition of things. We're not, you don't have to take the whole elephant of psychoanalysis and Freud and Young that's to right. use a term like subconscious. That's foolish to think that you do. And we don't, of right, course. If you're preaching right. and you use the term subconscious, everybody kind of knows what you mean. It just means like the stuff that you don't think about that much that motivates you and is, is percol right. percolating beneath you. And we don't have to have a real rigid scientific understanding, and we certainly don't have to take it from those guys, mm -hmm. from a bunch of 100-year-old German guys, uh, of what that actually is. Like, who cares what that actually is? Only God knows what that actually is. Only God knows how much is beneath the surface of any given person. But it's there. But it's there. The Bible and, knows it's there. It talks and, about it being and, there. And boys at Handy to have a word for it. Yeah. Boys at Handy to have a word for stress or for trauma or for all yeah. these things. Trauma is one that will be dismissed today because everybody's talking about trauma. But it's like, I can believe in sin. I can believe in generational sin. I can believe in the effects of sin. I can believe in total depravity. I can believe in all kinds of things. It's I can believe in a sinful response to uh, traumatic events. Right. It's still handy to have a word for... Yeah. Trauma. It's just vocabulary. It's just an additional color to paint with to understand your world. And so, you know, on the one hand, so you can look at something like attachment theory and say, well, okay, attachment theory is just talking about bonding, right? Parents should bond with their kids. And if you don't bond with your kids, then it causes problems for the kids. So attachment theory is just talking about something boring and normal and old. And so whatever. Okay, well, there's a way to do that is, that is to be entirely dismissive. A lot of the good uh, work that attachment theory people have done and then to rob people of some of that good. And then there's a way to do that that says, no, th there's a whole world of people that have dug deep into the nature of how God designed parents and children to bond and the impact that that has on their lives. And so we can take that and we can dig deep into it and then not put too much weight in, in it, but the appropriate amount of weight. Yeah, um, I think you just, you use these things and you hold them lightly. Those people right. say, hey, we have some insight. Okay, great, I'll take that and never spank your kids. Well, not gonna do that. Yeah, <coughs> you're wrong. You're wrong, sorry. I've seen kids spanked, I've seen kids unspanked. My observation trumps your studies. That's right, well, scripture. Uh, and, and scripture, yes, <laughs> that too. <laughs> Scripture's, scripture trumps your studies. Right. We'll take biblical wisdom over like anything, you have these like theories and they become the your one size fits all sort of theory. You become very wooden. The gift that attachment theorists and, and specialists have given us is understanding just how important it is to bond with your kids and just how much impact not being well bonded to your mother or your father uh, can actually have on you downstream. And all of that is just a reflection of how God made us to be how God designed us, how God designed parents to be. And all of that would have been understood on some level and assumed or taken for granted. And the reason we have attachment theorists and specialists is because that's all downstream of no-fault divorce and all kinds of horrible evils in our country. And yes, we all understand that's true. But mm -hmm. guess what? We live in a world where everybody's downstream of that. We live in a country where everybody's downstream of that. 
And it's really good and useful and helpful to have handles to help people overcome those wounds Mm -hmm. because they're real wounds. And people have been sinned against and people have responded sinfully to the ways they've been sinned against. It all has to do with God and it has to begin and end there. There are good ways of thinking and talking about that that we can we can work through. All has to do with God. Obviously, all has to do with William Stieg. Everything um, we've said today. <laughs> <laughs> hey, tune Does, in for it wraps around. Tune in for the fighting. What is he? He's a what is Dominic? He's a dog. He's a dog. Yeah, tune yeah. in for the fighting dog. Dog with the spear. Stay for the attachment theory, guys. One more thing that we have to do. Well, two more things. First, we have to go to the haven of reflection upon deeper meaning. I think we've already covered all this. I think we covered this pretty well. Yeah. All right. We've been there. Goodbye, Haven. We're just flying out. (laughs) You just get out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Flying over the Haven of Reflection on Deeper Meaning. Listen, that brings us to a part of the show where we, well, I guess we give our final thoughts. Guys, Ben, how many dog spears out of... 14 do you give to Dominic? 12. That's my unconscious mind signing mm. it a number, you see. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you should follow it without I'm, I'm reservation. Giving, I'm giving it a 12. I felt like as I read it, I would have given it more like a 9 or a 10. After thinking about Stieg and talking about him, 12. Yeah, that's interesting. So my experience, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and divide it out. My experience of reading it was a 9. My ultimate feelings after this discussion have elevated it a bit to, let's say, an 11. And in terms of the actual intrinsic quality, I'm going to give it a one. It sucks. Jake? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it a 10. 10. Love it. Okay. I was kidding about that part where I said that I <laughs> no, you wanted to give it Shut a Shut up. A, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody <laughs> believes that. Jay and Katie don't believe that. They know what you feel now. Jay and Katie know that. You know what I really feel <laughs> is that Dominic the donkey, the Christmas the Italian Christmas donkey has been stuck in my head since <laughs> you guys know this song. <laughs> yes, no, I do. I don't. It goes a jing a ding hee haw hee haw Dominic the donkey jing a ding hee haw hee haw the Italian Christmas donkey, which I'm not I'm not really doing it justice because it's a novelty song from like the 50s or 60s and the guy his name was Lou Bega, and I think he made a career out of being an Italian who embodied the worst Italian stereotypes. <laughs> In the world. That's um, really funny. And so he wrote a Christmas song. But he song. made a deal with the Godfather. Mm-hmm. So you know his music to this day. It does feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> and one time, my wife and I were kissing under some mistletoe. True, <laughs> true story. We were. It, was, it pops on. Yeah, we like had some nice he Christmas ended, mu- music. Nat King Cole ended. And, uh, oh, man, it threw a bucket of cold water on our. This was early in our marriage. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> Uh, I hope that that's a, a holiday staple for you guys now. <laughs> yeah, no. We got to shout out our patrons. So how do you become a patron of The Bookening, Jake? You go to patreon.com forward slash The Bookening and you sign up for as little as a cup of coffee a month, but you don't want to do that. What you want to do is you want to sign up for our $50 a month level because at the $50 a month level, what you get is every book that we read, personalized, autographed, delivered to your doorstep in time to read it before you listen to our episode on it. Along with all our other rewards, including our donor shout-outs. Preach it. And uh, that book delivered to your doorstep with autographs inside in time to uh, listen along. Yep. Most of the time. 100 bucks. Not true of Dominic at all. No, you can get this book after the episode comes out, but that's because... The book is going to be mailed after the episode comes out. I think the book's already been mailed, actually. Okay. It was mailed earlier today. Okay. All right. If I understand. It was signed earlier today, too. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But uh, yeah, so why don't you say which woodland animal these various people are most like, starting with the artful Anthony Dodger and Bootstrap Betsy, Ben? Definitely adventurous dogs. Adventurous dogs, of course. What about Little Anthony's Cigar Store? What animal does that remind you of, Jake? You know what I want to say, but I'm too sad to say. I feel like you shouldn't say it. I, I feel like you got to, yeah. It's, I'm too sad. It's a new era, the dawn of a new era. Furry woodland creature? Yeah. Yes. You got your stoats, your weasels, <laughs> your rabbits, your badgers. It's a squirrel. A squirrel. a squirrel. What about the immortal Chelsea E, Ben? Let's see here. A uh, the goose. A the goose. Jimmy Bean, Little Annie Oakley, Jake? Squirrel. All right. Uh, Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds? Birds. Uh, that, was, that was easy. <laughs> the Keith Master. Squirrel. Dan and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also see us list, including Till We Have Faces, Ben? <laughs> Charming Rich Pigs. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a callback to the book. Yeah. Yeah, callback to the book. Not a thing that you were talking about as you angrily read this book. <laughs> Why do these pigs make us read this? <laughs> not true. Not true at all. DJ Sammy G. Squirrel. Now you just sound like the dog from Up. <laughs> uh, Benny and Dan and Tiberius. Foxes. Eric and Catherine from Round Window Breaks. Squirrels. Lavender's Green Dylan Dylan. Rabbits. No Constructor. Squirrel. Merchip. Mouse. Anthony who is ha- uh, cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. <laughs> Squirrel. Juicy Jeffrey the Texas Ranger. Turtle. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Squirrel. Javrak and Ruin. Donkey. Eric and Kate the Camp Champ. Donkey. Squirrels. The Camp Champ Kings who are glo- warm and love bees. Wait, was that still Jake's or is that mine? I, I already no answered idea. it. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Yellow Jacket. Cold Steel Cody. Squirrels. John Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille his mate. Uh, Armadillo. Saxophone Alex. Squirrel. Ryan the Terror of Texas. Eric of the Cream and Curves and are no longer stuck in the cold. Please send cheese. Jackrabbit. Ben Solo and Kylo Ren. Squirrels. John the Cosmic King of Chaos. Weasel. Yeah. Take that, John. Many, many Batman. Squirrel. I'm just kidding, John. Thank you for supporting us. Any area? Okay. Get your gun. Goat. <laughs> <laughs> just using all the animals uh, from Dominic. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thor Ragnajash. Squirrel. <laughs> Lady of the Crystal Lake. <laughs> Goose. Squirrel. Okay. <laughs> uh, mysterious Phantom. Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of I also feel like we can't bring this into the new era. No. Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Le- Dr- Dreth and his brooding bride, Maya. 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 Oh. Um, ba-dum, ba-dum. Elephant? <laughs> You're a dumb elephant. <laughs> um, ba-dum, elephant. <laughs> uh, remains- woodland creature, if ever there was one. Yes. <laughs> remains of the J. Squirrel. Lamort de Trenton. Stoke. Maya, when I try to think of a cute furry woodland animal to uh, compare you to, all I can think of is an elephant. That's great. <laughs> Jeremy's going to kill you. Right. <laughs> Just because she's pregnant. Come on. Daniel, man, man among men, and Jen who strikes again every now and again. Or no, I'm sorry. Daniel, man among men, and Jen who strikes again every now and then. Um, Badger. <laughs> 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 and that's how you play Donor Shout <laughs> Folks, be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Or maybe don't. <laughs> no, no, no. This was a high-quality episode. I feel really good about this episode. I'm excited for people to hear it. Dominic. 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 <laughs> <laughs> 
I think we've summoned them. <laughs> Here he comes. <laughs> Never say Dominic three times. Candyman, Beetlejuice, and Dominic. Candyman, Beetlejuice, and Dominic. The big three.